Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In this week's episode, you'll be hearing a discussion between Hugh Lemmy and Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Hugh Lemmy is the author of three books, Chubbs and Red Tory, both published with Montez Press, and Unknown Language, which was recently published with Ignota Books. He also has a weekly newsletter called Utopian Drivel, and co-hosts the podcast Bad Gaze with Ben Miller. He'll be speaking with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, who is a writer, activist, and the author of multiple books, including Sketch to See and The End of San Francisco. Most recently, she has authored The Freezer Door, which published with Semiotext in November. In her book, she explores the nature of desire, sexuality, and queerness in a world built upon rigid structures of normativity. Hi Matilda, thank you very much for the book. It's, it feels like such a gift to have read it and to find explained and elucidated so many really fascinating and like thoughtful, nuanced points around queer identity today, but also to, to learn something of your perspective about it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. I'm excited to talk to you today. I mean, the book's the book's fascinating because it seems that there's these, it's infused, I feel, with like a, quite a sense of frustration around this, these like, two searches that are sort of perhaps part of the same search, one of which is for, I guess, like a certain type of queer space or community as it might exist today or as as you might want it to exist, I guess for a certain type of relationship that can exist within that community that might, you know, you it feels like you might be reaching towards. And you say that early in the book that when you, you had these sort of early encounters of those sort of spaces in, in San Francisco when you first moved there in the 90s, that there are certain relationships there, which uh, not that you're trying to recapture, but that the, the, the aspects of those communities that have been lost. Do you know, is that fair to say? Yeah, when I moved to San Francisco in 1992, when I was 19, and I was searching for a way to exist in a world that I knew wanted me to die or disappear. And San Francisco is really the place that formed me in the sense of finding, you know, queer outsiders who were dedicated to creating our own culture, our own ways of living with and loving and taking care of one another that were not predicated in dominant norms, either dominant straight norms or dominant gay norms. And so that was like a world of, you know, uh, sluts and whores and vegans and anarchists and activists and uh, incest survivors and finding one another and escaping the worlds that didn't allow us to exist, more or less. And I think the value of that time period that I missed is the sense that when you were creating a relationship, you were always looking for revealing more. So you were always digging deeper so that you could be more open, so that you could be more present, so that you could have nothing hidden at all. And I think that aspect in queer worlds, I think in many ways, has kind of disappeared. But also, of course, that was when I was 19, 20, 21. And most of those relationships did not survive. 
So I still believe in that dream, I guess. That's that's sort of what I'm invoking and maybe what you're pointing to. Yeah, right. Because you talk as well about missing when when fags kissed on the lips, which I found very moving because that's something, yeah, that that the really is like started to or like almost faded away. That's right at the beginning of the book, you know, where right. I say, I remember when faggots kissed hello and that this was something joyous and commonplace and art, you know, a legacy we were inheriting. And it was just something, and it was across the board. And it was something, a world that I was coming into that I didn't necessarily understand entirely. But it was, you know, this was among radical queers and this was among completely mainstream gay men. And you would meet someone on the street you had never met before and you would just kiss them hello, you know, and it was just yeah. in a way a kind of, I don't know if I thought of this then, but it, it was a way of kind of sense of communal possibility, even when you might have nothing in common. And I think the irony of it is that, you know, this moment, the moment of my coming age in the early nineties in San Francisco was when it felt like everyone was dying of AIDS. And so the irony is that it felt like fags, were less afraid of one another then than they yeah. are now when obviously we have treatments that make HIV into a manageable condition for many. But that act of kissing has disappeared for the most part, especially you know in, in mainstream worlds, but actually, no, I think across the board. And I think I miss that sudden intimacy, even in its uncomfortability, you know, at certain moments, right? But I think in that, of course, is the trajectory of assimilation where because I think even when it wasn't an act of resistance, it was still an act of resistance to be kissing in public, you know, and it was telling the rest of the world that the, that didn't matter. This was just our world. And yeah. I think that ethic doesn't exist as much anymore. Or when it does, it's kind of privatized. Even in radical queer worlds, like they exist kind of as a separate world, which has its value, but they don't often engage in the broader context. And of course, gay mainstream worlds are, you know, sometimes worse than like straight normalcy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, as a gesture, it's it's both like extremely intimate and personal, but it's also in public a very sort of external broadcast or something. And and it's almost like some of those codes for recognizing each other have, have sort of slipped away as assimilation has become more of the sort of mainstream part of gay culture. And what, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was within radical queer circles today or groups, there's still a lot of discussion about assimilation, but it's so often actually divorced from these actual very significant discussions about like the little things in, in life, you know, like they, they become slogans in their own right about gay marriage and assimilation and homonormativity and heteronormativity and homonationalism that actually it was really refreshing to to read something which actually describes in a very practical material way, like what makes up these little aspects of, of sort of everyday assimilation. And, and within that, there's actually quite a lot of nuance as well, that, that, that the critiques that have also become cliches almost. So like that, that's something I really enjoyed in, in, in reading it, was these reminders of these very like interpersonal, intimate relationships that you, you're having with people when you're cruising or in in clubs and stuff about like the way people interact with with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think in a way the book a lot is structured in a way as a search for embodiment and a search for a way to exist in my body in all these different worlds that don't exactly allow that. 
And I think in a way, you know, I'm kind of structuring the book toward feeling and feeling sometimes is that sense of embodiment. And sometimes it's that sense of failure or loneliness or disaster or devastation or hopelessness or disembodiment, right? And I think I really wanted to get that felt sense. Obviously, I'm engaging also, you know, with these intellectual ideas. But for me, I don't want to engage with the ideas separate from the body. You know, I want the text itself to be in search for its own embodiment, just as I am. And so in terms of like putting together the text and the form of it, it's form, it has quite an interesting sort of rhythm to it. You know, it's like a, there's you talk early on about the idea, idea almost of repetition. And I was wondering if there's a relationship actually between like the search and then like the idea of the repetition within the text. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think so when I write a new book, and especially in, in the case of this book, I really have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just writing and I'm kind of just putting everything I'm thinking into one document. And for this book, I did that for a few years before I had a sense of maybe what it was. And and that sense was when I realized, oh, it is this search. I'm going into spaces that I already know are corrupt in order to find what isn't. Um, Because I no longer believe in the spaces that I once thought might not be corrupt. And so I started with like a thousand pages of text in one document. And then I'm kind of paring it down to its essentials. So I think in some ways that repetition is the search itself, but also it's a revision process where I might have like a hundred cruising experiences that I think are all kind of interesting, but then I'm paring it down just to this very, like, what is the interaction that happens that matters in this context? Or like the same thing with, let's say, going into bars or um, embodiment, or even like, you know, looking at the horrible outfits that are for sale at the yoga boutique, or interacting with trees in the city, or the refusal of people to interact with me on the street, and that sort of, or gentrification itself. And so in a way, that repetition, I, I, I agree entirely, that is the search itself. And I think in structuring it, I always, I wanted to maintain the spontaneity of it, but it's like highly edited, you know, it's, it's, I do like 15 drafts. So in order to get that spontaneity, which of course is, you know, is an irony in itself, but I think I, I really edit through the voice so that anything that's getting in the way with the voice, you know, I cut out or anything that I think, you know, obviously the text, you know, has a kind of like elliptical structure where it's circling around itself. And so it's kind of like this inquisitive, search and i so i feel like that's the search in the book but it's also the text searching itself like language itself which is also a topic of the book like you know because i'm trying to convey with language what maybe cannot be conveyed with language but i still need to try (laughs) yeah yeah. it's like a refinement you know it's like a like that's 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 again like i think something that's like maybe really valuable in the way you're looking at queer relationship or that like it's only a one-off and it's just like, you know, a blowjob in the park or maybe it's these like more like longer term things. And then like maybe they go somewhere or maybe they don't and maybe they call back and maybe they don't. But there's value in all of them, even if they don't actually ever reach perhaps like that, like something that you would like to continue perhaps. And, and and that's in contrast to this this idea. I can't remember the song you meant you, you referenced, but this this sort of love song that you hear, which is like about the ownership of like one true love and this like sort of heteronormative or, or a heterosexual idea of like finding and capturing the one that you 
the, the ideal one. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's like almost all love songs, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all like, oh, I found the one. Or they're like, the one that I found destroyed me. <laughs> or they're like, the one that I found destroyed me, but I still believe in this love, right? And so I don't want those options because I don't think those are really options. And yeah. I think for me, a queer relationship with desire means that desire exists in everyday interaction. So like if I'm going out on the street, sure, desire is the desire to have sex with someone or the desire to, you know, get fucked in the park, you know, but also the desire is, you know, looking at the light, you know, as it hits the top of a building or just like a, a an interaction with someone who says, I love your hat or just, you know, and, and I feel like that openness for me, that is also, that's the dream of the city, right? The place mm -hmm. where you find everything and everyone that you never imagined. And so the book, in a way, you know, the first line of the book is one problem with gentrification is that it always gets worse. And so gentrification is the landscape in which the book is taking place. And that means gentrification in the way we usually think of it, which is property speculation and displacement and turning neighborhoods that are vital into destinations for consumption and, and all of that. But also, I think the gentrification of all of our interactions. And I think Seattle, in a way, which is where the book takes place, for the most part, in some ways, you know, like in Seattle, we have this term, it's like a terrible term, but people will say, people refuse to engage in public space. And for me, that's the sort of suburban mentality in the urban environment. Like the suburban mentality has conquered the dream of the city. Yeah. And, but we're still living in it. And Seattle is, you know, it's a boom town. It's like grown massively. But as it's grown, there's less interaction on the street. And you know, people will call that the Seattle freeze. And that's when you're like walking down the street, you see someone in the distance and they look kind of interested, you know, that you're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So you get closer and they like turn to the side to look at a wall. Or you might even see someone you know who like sees you on the street and like looks away like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And in Seattle, people are like, oh, that's the Nordic heritage. And which is a complete absurdity. Like 20 years ago, no one mentioned that term. And it's entirely related to gentrification and yeah. kind of Seattle, the dominant gentrifier of the moment. Well, in the 90s, it was Microsoft. Now it's Amazon, right? So it's all this tech, you know, homogenization, people only looking at their phones, or they might live in these like, you know, mid-rise buildings that are designed to look like very urban. Um, you know, you have a great roof deck. You have like an internet lounge, you know, at the top floor. You might have like, Dry cleaning can be delivered. It's part of your, you know, your rent. <laughs> and you drive yeah. into your like underground garage and you have no interaction whatsoever with anyone else. You order your food in, et cetera. And so for me, like the kind of queerness I believe in is the queerness that refuses those boundaries. And so for me, like I still, and the book, a, a lot of ways is about the point of being in a city is to exist in public. Like we can exist in private anywhere. Sure, we might not find as many people. But so for me, I'm still trying to have that experience with the world. And when I can't have it with people, I'll have it with the graffiti or with the trees. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I guess the, the word used are like openness. Like it's about this, ser- like the be, being open to serendipity, and that you, your interactions might not be pre-programmed down some sort of like social code, whether that's interaction with a service worker or being a service worker and interacting with a, a member of the public, or you know, like it's the it's the opportunity to go out and not to know what you're going to encounter in that day, and that to me seems like really tied in with a lot of the f- sort of forms of queer behavior that you were sort of discussing in perhaps San Francisco in the 90s and also obviously in like cruising and like these sort of public sex cultures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, well, public sex is an interesting, I get, yeah, that's another good example for me of what I would call a gentrified mentality. So like public sex, you know, when my, all my first sexual experiences, like when I was like 14, 15, 16 and a closeted kid growing up in Washington, D.C., were in public bathrooms. And there was nothing liberating about it, but it was my only option. Um, but eventually, after years of that, I figured out a way, oh, I can actually exist. And I think also letting go, because I, when I first, you know, was, became like an avowedly queer person, moved to San Francisco, and I was like, oh, I have to let go of that terrible behavior that was shameful. <laughs> but really, and then I, you know, certain things, like I think David Wonorovich, reading Close to the Knives, and the way he talks about desire, like in, it's everything. It's in the landscape. It's in driving, you know, down the street. It's like in going on a road trip. It's taking the subway. And that kind of freed me to realize, oh, desire not having bounds is part of this, you know, radical queer project. And also there was this magazine called Steam. This is, you know, pre-internet. And so it was a magazine that Basically, it was a journal, actually. They called it a journal of public sex. And so the whole thing was just like, here's where you go if you happen to be in Los Angeles or on this truck stop in Kansas. And it really like reveled in this idea of bathrooms and beaches and alleys and parks as the ideal sites for transcendence, you know, not places of shame. But of course, they always also have been places of shame and still are. And, you know, there are lots of closeted people. There are lots of gay men who have like very stable jobs and nice, you know, partners and don't want anyone to ever know that they're there. And I think the thing that's really changed, in my opinion, from when I first went into, I mean, that's always exists. And there's also this hyper-masculinity where like masculinity is the thing the, the ideal in the hallowed realm of the gods. And anything that departs from that is not worthy of uh, compassion or even thinking of humans, even though there are plenty of queens and always have been, you know, but like queens are not what is desired in those spaces for the most part. There are certain boundaries, of course, that are less clear, like class and race, I think, in public sex spaces. But But I feel like what's happened that's really, that I would call a gentrification of the body and a gentrification of a desire itself is that in the past, even if there was that shame, even if there was that obsession with like basically straight masculinity, even if people were wary of being there, when you had the sex, people wanted to be present. And I think what's changed is I would say in in most interactions, People don't want to be present. They want, it's like transactional, you know, experience. And for me, that is very disembodied. 
And I do, and I feel like that is that internalization of instead of the idea like, oh, anything could happen, right? Like I could have like, you know, an incredibly, like I could just get fucked against this tree and it could be like this transformative experience in that moment and that's all. Or I could like meet someone and have a conversation, right? And like, but I feel like it's so bounded that even when there is connection, people are like, oh, I have to let, that's like something gross and that I'm separating from the rest of my life. And I guess for me, I don't want it to be separate, but I feel like it's more and more separate. And I feel like that separation or that fracturing is also something that I'm sort of exploring, you know, in the book where, you know, like, I guess the dream of queer in my sense, you know, one of the parts, you know, is that it potentially has no boundaries, right? No hierarchies, but I don't see that actually existing. And then there are these spaces like, you know, like public sexual spaces, which I would not call queer. They're basically gay or closeted. (laughs) But sometimes there's more potential in those spaces and sometimes there's less. And so I guess I wanted to just place everything kind of on a level playing field, even as I am searching for, I guess, yeah, like you mentioned, my ideal of relationships has not really changed, even though from when I was first coming of age as an avowedly queer person in the world, but the world has changed. And some of it also, I mean, some of it, of course, I'm not 20 now, you know, I'm 47, very glamorous 47. But I feel like people, as they age, like assimilate into a very middle class mindset often, even people who are not in that in those worlds. And that means like finding the partner or something. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for friendships. Like to me, I don't see it. I don't, I don't have a boundary between like friendship and you know, a romantic partnership or whatever, you know, people would say, like, to me, they're all the same, even if that doesn't, that hasn't worked out for me that well. But I guess for me, I still want friendship where we do reveal everything, where we are in a part kind of like us against the world, where we are committed to one another, where there is a consistency and a through line, where it is about negotiation and mutuality and transformation and transcendence together, you know, where it is about like holding each other's hands or, you know, and bodies and minds and dreams and possibilities and nurturing all of that so that we can exist. And also so that those communal possibilities can exist in a broader sense in the world. Those are still my dreams. Even I think that sometimes those dreams can, can last for like 10 minutes, like you're saying, right? Uh, I would like them to continue. But I do also want to be open to that 10 minute experience. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you don't want to be entering every every encounter with a, with a sort of perspective, you know, portfolio of what the relationship should look like and how it's going to look like in two years. You know, like maybe it's just that amount of time. But yeah, I think it's interesting, like that this, again, like this relationship gentrification as well. Like Samuel Delaney talks about this quite a lot about it, the quite often these public sex spaces. They're not utopian, but they do have these opportunities for like, intra-class and intra-race contact within within spaces that wouldn't normally be within cities where that where, where which can be quite like sort of segregated or delineated or something and that quite often like if you're encountering people on a, in a very embodied way in those sort of spaces you don't know anything that much about them you can try and read the signifier like a lot of signifiers off the way they present but in reality they can be like super embodied experiences and i think what's interesting like when you're talking uh, in in the book is is about maybe the difference between some of those 
put more public spaces in, maybe have those spaces themselves become gentrified in terms of, in terms of like saunas, for example, or in terms of these clubs as well? Well, what's interesting is I think the way that that gentrification plays out is really about shame. Like it's that, because I don't know that the spaces themselves have changed that much, but the way people interact and like, and I don't, I didn't, you know, it's also, I'm talking about the difference between the nineties and now, whereas obviously people existed in those spaces, like the glory days, right. would be the seventies. And I've never even experienced that, you know, when people would have like, you go to a sex club and Bette Midler would be performing, right? <laughs> <laughs> or where there would be a, a kind of camp engagement with that, like in a, in a deliberate sense, or where there would be, you know, where people would like be engaging as friends. I feel like that is very, yeah. very, very rare. And I feel like the shame, especially like, you know, the sex club I go to a lot in the book in Seattle, Steamworks, where it's almost like, I'm like, are these people straight? You know, and they're not straight. We're all in this sex club together. But of course, there may be some closeted people. Most of these people are very gay. But the way they interact, it's like that, that, you know, the way like looking at the porn with this like intense, like as if they're closeted, right? And it's like, don't talk. You know, you can't talk. No talking, right? Because like talk somehow like breaks, you know, the illusion of masculinity, right? And so I feel like the shame is obviously the shame predates gentrification. But it's, I feel like gentrification itself brings on this shame and calls it progress. You know, that's the difference, right? It's like you can have your designer baby that you pay the surrogate to have. You can live in your beautiful house. You can have your amazing job. You can have, you know, your new terriers that you go on walks with every day. <laughs> Part of that package is an intense shame and fear and hatred of anything that departs from those norms. And that ironically, you know, is not that different from straight homophobia or straight fear or just fear of the feminine across the board or fear of the other. So these worlds that are like hallowed as like the ultimate, you know, progress, right, are in some ways I think rivaling straight homophobia at this point. Yeah, right. And it's this, this same sort of these same sort of suburban values. I think are really bought into like urban gay male homes, and that in that people might be able to feel that they are opting out of. It, that, that, oh well, I'm not actually sort of that heteronormative because we have these sex parties at the weekends, or you know, if it's open relationship or something. But actually, if those are removed only to these private spaces like these homes, then it's still the same suburban suburban attitude of who comes in and out of my space and choosing who I associate with in that way. Whereas in these more public queer spaces, uh, like, like bars even, or, or saunas or, or, you know, out on the street, then there's again, this fact that you're going to have to clash with people who you wouldn't necessarily choose to. And actually that is a useful eye-opening thing in itself. Right. Yeah, I agree entirely. And I think the internet also has a large part to do with that. You know, the internet or apps where, people really, what they want or what they say they want is so different from what they would actually experience in the world. <laughs> you know, like people are like, oh, I want like this exact thing, right? And they look at, you know, the photo and like study, you know, they're like, is this exactly the type of 
abdominal definition that I want or like, yeah. you know, or they're like, I'm only this, I'm only a top or I'm only a bottom or I no kissing or, you know, whatever. And the reality is that's not, I think for anyone what they actually want, but people have become so used to that, that they don't even know how to exist in public anymore. And like, I'll see people at bars who are like on grinder, and it's like, why are you at a bar? Yeah. <laughs> it's My, like, where they'll like look to see if other people in the bar <laughs> are on grinder. Yeah. So they well, send well, them a message. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that you, also is, is the privatization of public space. Yeah. 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 Seeing people in the street and then checking grinder afterwards to see if they're still nearby rather than just going up to them in the street. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think also like that's why I found maybe personally quite challenging in a really nice way about the book. Like really made me think about is is the degree to which these encounters become almost like scripted. Like I've really felt like this year only sort of encountering people really on Grinder because of uh, the lockdown here is very very strict. All the bars have been closed um, um, and clubs and dark rooms and everything. Is the degree to which actually you you sort of engaging in these like scripted sexual encounters almost to the point where people say like i want you to do this and this and this and that's what they're looking for and really taking out so much spontaneity even out of a one-on-one encounter beyond even like i'm only looking for someone who's six foot two with abs or or whatever <laughs> that for me i found like yeah i think i've also engaged with in a way that i hadn't really realized the degree to which i'd become disembodied almost in my own in my own self about that but i think it would be like really recognizable to to a lot of people reading the book yeah, I agree entirely. Thank you. Do you think that's to do with porn as well? Yeah, I think it, well, I think it just has to do with consumer culture in general, right? Because like gay culture is so tied into consumerism at this point that sometimes you're like, what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah. and some of it is just like the most bland, what boring, like white diva, you know, song is out right now. But don't tell anyone on Grinder that you listen to that white diva. Because that's even too much for Grinder, right? Like, like on Grinder, oh no, music. The only music I listen to is like the sound of someone fucking me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been really interesting. Like you mentioned the pandemic, because before this book came out, you know, I wrote it in the present, and I thought of it: this is the present, right? And then, you know, March, April, May, the present changed entirely for all of us, and I thought what the hell are people going to think of this book now? (laughs) But what's been fascinating, and I didn't understand it at first because people who were reading it before it came out were like, oh my God, this is so relevant right now. And I didn't really know what they meant. But then as it's come out into the world and as people are relating it, relating to it in in reviews, you know, in interviews, um, and then in the broader world is people are I feel like they relate to it more. Like the themes of loneliness and alienation Mm. and searching for connection anyway, and even gentrification and the removal of the public from public space and the ways in which even the form of the book, I feel like people are relating to more. Like they, they understand that it's fractured because the feeling itself causes those fractures and because people are feeling fractured. And obviously... I don't know. I can't say that most people are not lonely all the time, but people are way more aware of it. And there's like a public engagement with loneliness in a way that definitely didn't exist. Loneliness as not something that someone feels alone, but that we're all feeling together, right? And so that's an interesting 
in a way, a kind of communal possibility. And I feel like it's been amazing like to see people engage with the book so deeply in such an emotional level, almost across the board, which I literally did not expect. I thought people were going to be like, what? Public sex? That can't happen. Or like, what? what? You're walking around in the world. Where's your mask? (laughs) (laughs) But people really, really engaged deeply. And I think, I guess thinking about that, like, I do think there is an opportunity here. I don't see it being actualized, but I think there's an opportunity in all of us feeling this loneliness together. Like, what can we make and create and imagine and realize that couldn't have happened before? And because people, there's so much of this rhetoric around the before and the after, right? And I think for me, and I think in, in, you know, in the book, I'm talking about a different before and after. So I might be talking about like the 90s or different places I've lived, possibilities that existed then that may not exist now. But I'm not talking about it to romanticize those places. I'm talking about it because I want to create those possibilities now. And I think when we romanticize something or look at it through a nostalgic lens, it like takes away all the nuance and complication and messiness and the layers of our lived experience. And so I always want to write against that kind of nostalgia. And I think there's something that's happening now with pre-pandemic and our current you know, reality is where people are like, oh my God, I can't wait for things to go back to normal. And I'm like, well, normal was already horrible. Like the like, you know, racist, white supremacist, like anti-everything, like the colonial paradigm, the, you know, I'm living in the US, right? It's like the dominant colonial power in the world. And people are like, yay, trans people could be in the military as if that's progress. (laughs) And I think rather than like, and I feel like those are the broader lenses, but I think on the intimate level, we have a possibility, like I feel like everyone understands now the value of the public because the public is the safest place for us in many ways. Like maybe it always has been, but most people did not realize that. Now people are like, oh, like you might go to a park and someone's having like a little party in like 40 degree weather and it's raining and that wouldn't have happened before. But the thing that's the problem is that people are still acting like they're in private space. Like I'll see like a little party and I'm like, oh, this is fun. And then I walk over to like my six to 10 feet away and people are looking like, oh my God, an invader, an alien, keep this person away. And I'm like, well, this is the park. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I think the possibility is how do we, on a personal level, how do we imagine desire or intimacy or connection as something broader, you know, and more communal and without walls? And on a structural level, like how do we change public space to actually allow these possibilities to exist. And then on a broad, even broader level, just like, you know, obviously like, you know, the same struggles that we've always been existing, you know, against dominant institutions of oppression. But I feel like thinking about, no one's really thinking about these things. You know, here we just had this election and people are like, oh my God, Biden has a dog in the White House. Isn't this amazing? (laughs) There's so much progress. We have a dog in the White House. And I'm like, is that we probably would have a much better political situation if that dog was the president. But since the dog is just living there under the president's control, I think we're still under the same tyranny in many ways, you know? And I think, so I guess that's just something I've just been thinking about is 
how can we imagine? Maybe I always am thinking about this, but I think in this particular moment, because I'm worried, whatever people decide, there's going to be like a moment or a date and people are like, everything's normal now. It's all fine. And then all of us who were not necessarily doing that well before are going to be doing even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I kind of felt like that there seems to be like this, not, not any sort of um, awareness or, or part of the reason why so, so much of the crisis has been so bad is precisely because of those same systems and ways of life that came beforehand, you know, that part of the reason why there has been so much isolation is because so much life was privatized and moved to private space and there was so little interaction between public and so little chance of serendipity you know like the the way people have encountered the crisis is, is just an extension of the same sort of relationships and forms that people had with each other beforehand yeah i agree entirely and i feel like yeah and that's why i think and i thought i felt this at the very beginning when i thought you know we all thought it was gonna be like a few months and i was like oh well let's take these few months like just to take desire by itself like well, how can I imagine how I want my desire to exist in the world? Like, how can I make it more and not less? And I was like, okay, I have a few months. Like, let me think into or feel into, you know, and I want, so I wanted desire with, without those boundaries, right? I want, you know, desire in intimate relationships in, and also in just random experiences on the street or in conversations that I have on the bus. Or like, how do I feel more of that possibility of intimacy in everyday experience. And, and like, how do we make these things happen? And I feel like now, of course, obviously th- th- it's lasted a lot more than a few months and we have no end in sight that I see. And I still think, you know, and, and we'll, like, we'll see like things like, I don't know, restaurants that are supposed to be closed that are open or something. That's all that people can think about. Like, how can I get my delicious Thai food or something, you know? And like, how can I sit? Like here, you're allowed to sit outside, but not inside. So they'll like open all the windows and sit inside and they'll be like, this is outside or something. And like, there's actually a sex club here that's open. And I'm like, I don't, I'm horrified by that idea. But it's like, what if they were like, let's make our roof deck. I mean, the roof, let's make the roof into a public sex space. Those are just very limited things, you know, yeah, or like yeah. you'll, you'll walk by a restaurant and they have a fire pit outside on the street so that people can sit in the rain and eat. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what if we were like, let's just have a fire pit so that people are, you know, have to live on the street are warm. You know what I mean? Instead, it's like there are people that are allowed to be outside and eating on the street. And then there are people who are living in tents who are like arrested every night, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, so it's actually unfortunately, magnifying those same divisions when there's so much potential to annihilate those divisions. Yeah. On that subject, actually, of yeah, like those spaces for desire, I guess, where your desire can sort of flourish, there's, there's a really interesting part in the book where you talk about this, I guess it's an, I guess it's an assertion that's kind of become sort of a truism, uh, for maybe for good reason, about gender and sexuality and the difference that, they, that there's a sort of there's clear blue water between these two things, and you and you talk about the fact that um, actually you think that maybe that's part of part of the problem that sort of way of discussing gender and sexuality, and that I think you say you say that where um, that in spaces where your sort of gender self expression can happen, there's not room for desire, and then there are spaces where your desires can be met, and there doesn't seem to be room for your the rest of you. I think you say. 
And I mean, there's two sides to that. There's one which is the the initial problem, obviously, but then the second one is the the problem of that terminology, I guess. And that's one thing I thought was again like really valuable in the book is a refusal to let sort of those nuances just be flattened into a dogma, or does that you, you know you you keep go back and interrogate them again? And I was wondering if you think that like maybe that the need to explain as as uh, queer people have become more present, I guess, in mainstream culture, the need to explain these things has created these like new orthodoxies that are unhelpful. Yeah, in the and in the book, yeah, I'm like circling around a lot of these things. Yeah, so I think like as a child, you know, I was tormented for being a sissy and for being a fag, and way before I knew what that was, I had no idea. I just knew that I I would never be part of what I was supposed to be. You know, I would never be. That, that masculinity I was supposed to exude, I was never going to be let in. And it wasn't until like the first time I had sex education in school when they like defined homosexuality. And I was like, oh, I guess that is, yeah, that's kind of, I get it. Like that is where my sexual desire is. But I was like, but how do these kids know? Because I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And now I think people would say, oh, what they saw was gender, which is true. Um, but I think, and so, and there is this idea we have to rigidly separate gender um, transgression from, you know, sexuality, right? And we have to have these very clear definitions of like, what is a trans person or what is a gay person or even queer sometimes has these very delineated forms, right? And I think the question for me is when are these serving us in our goals of liberation and when are they actually creating more walls and i think the part that you point to where i mean queer worlds are the worlds that formed me and when i first encountered them in the early 90s these were dyke worlds you know they were almost entirely women and people kind of refusing conventional female socialization there were feminist spaces there were a few fags but we were only allowed in if we proved ourselves like worthy of being there, you know, and any infraction would banish us, right? And so people already had to know, and this was great in some ways because it like enabled me to create my politics in a really uh, meticulous, deep and methodical uh, way, right? Because I, I knew that I while these were the spaces that formed me, I also knew that my body did not belong and that I had to prove that I was not the enemy just because of a body that I was perceived as, right? And so, and I feel like queer worlds, while now there are no queer worlds that would say, we don't want certain bodies here, or they wouldn't, I mean, queer like as in anti-normative, uh, anti-capitalist, as in, you know, we believe in, you know, creating our own gender and sexual and social identities and encouraging self-determination for everyone. And those worlds would never be like, oh, these bodies are welcome and these bodies are, are not. But I do think that same legacy is still there. And obviously, you know, queer worlds emerged as, as alternatives to the misogyny, racism, classism, self-hatred, body fascism of gay worlds, right? And so... But I think for me, I'm more and more I'm aware that I guess from being in these worlds for so long and, you know, and 
these worlds have formed me and I've also helped to form them. And then knowing that my body, if I go into, if I go into a world and people are like, oh, that's Matilda, I might be welcome. But if I go into a world and people are like, what's that queen doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Or like, why is she here? You know, and like, and that's not that different than in like a mainstream gay world or even in a straight um, normative world. So I think for me, and I guess that's that question I have, which is like, maybe my body will never have a home. And the book in a way is a search for that. I don't have the answer, but I think if my body in spaces, like, like, you know, I, in these worlds, no one is going to question my analysis or the integrity of that, except in the way that people question everyone, but they will question why I belong. And I think that, I guess that's the other question I have is maybe belonging is the wrong goal. Like maybe the goal should be, how do we create space for everyone not to belong and to open up that possibility? Maybe that is its own communal possibility. Yeah, like a lack of a lack of ownership over those spaces by certain individuals, and a, a fact that you don't that yeah, that not belonging is it is in it itself what you might have in common, which which fundamentally seems to me like to be a, a very basic queer instinct, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's how these these spaces emerged. Yeah, that's how you find um, each again, other, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I think we have to look always for ways and i feel like queerness has taught me this right like how do we look for what's unexpected not for what's expected how do we look for commonality with people who are not in any way like us rather than just oh this person i you know is everything you know and i feel like sometimes the people who have and i yeah this is more and more the case and in queer worlds where people have this like amazing rhetoric about accountability about mutuality, about negotiation, about gender fluidity, about transformation, about holding dominant cultures accountable, about exposing hypocrisy. But then oftentimes, people in these worlds do the same things, (laughs) but they just call it something else. You know, they're like, oh, I, you know, abandoned you because I'm just taking some time for self-care. Yeah, you know? yeah. Or they're like, this person is abusive because they called me out on my racism. Or, you know, these people, and also that, that identitarian, this is actually very interesting to me because spaces in the early 90s were totally identitarian. You know, there were like dykes and there were fags. There were like men and there were women. There were, they were totally binary. And then in the late 90s, you know, early 2000s, all of that changed. But now we're back to this very identitarian thing. It's not binary in terms of whose bodies are welcome, but it is binary in terms of right and wrong. And in terms of, oftentimes I find, I guess one of the things that like, let, that, that I find most tragic in queer worlds is where people who are, you know, the most oppressed or the most marginalized sometimes use that marginalization because in queer worlds, those things are actually, uh, it's flipped, right? So like dominant normative, you know, culture is, is what people don't want. But like, let's say like disability or being a survivor or, you know, being a person of color or sometimes being fat even, or like 
just like anti-normative things, you're people like, oh, this is great. And then, but sometimes people will use their marginalization as ways to silence, you know, other people and enact kind of similar kind of power dynamics that I feel like for me, I guess I'm not going to be destroyed by dominant straight world, you know, hating me or despising me because I already know that, right? And I feel similarly in some ways about gay worlds, right? But like when queer worlds let me down, I feel like it sometimes can feel even more harmful. And I feel like this plays out a lot with like abusive relationships where, you know, people get stuck in these abusive relationships. But like, let's say the person who's the abuser is like a prison abolitionist, you know, and they're like, oh, well, I'm in this great relationship. It can't be as bad as I'm thinking, right? Because they just went to a protest that like, you know, said like, we need to end the prison industrial complex in all its forms. So I don't know. I don't want to get stuck here, but I do think like, I guess in the book, I want to kind of examine all of these ideals and their possibilities, but also the places they they fail and that they fail to actualize their potential. Because I do still think like all of these, these ideals still have that same potential, but we just need to figure out a way not to get stuck in... I guess in creating more, more like newer and cooler hierarchies or like flipping, flipping the, um, the stakes doesn't necessarily change the stakes, right? It just flips it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think people is, if you, if you're raised in such a, in, in a, in a society that is so punitive and is built around a sort of carceral system and, and these hierarchies and stuff, that it's very easy to reproduce those same logics in, but but with just this this shiny new coat of saying that you're a liberationist, but I do think that also people are very aware of that, and I, I think it's very telling that Sarah Shulman's book Conflict Is Not Abuse seemed to be welcomed like a sort of breath of fresh air when it came out. I think four four or five years ago, people people yeah are very, are very aware of the fact that those dynamics are being reproduced and and that it is still possible to 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 challenge them, and and, and I I felt. Again, in, in your book, there was a an openness to nuance and uh, uh, yeah, like a not wanting to engage in this logic of like casting people out or something that was uh, yeah, again, very refreshing, I, I suppose. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that is my goal. Like, but it's it's it's, it's telling that 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 both you and um, Sarah have come from you know like a having been engaged in in these sort of um, different different sort of forms of i guess like queer activism over the years as well sarah and i have a lot in common i mean from and also from a different generational perspective and also yeah from totally i mean like completely stylistically different engagement but engaging with some of the same issues yeah i agree and like for me i want a world not where we become the cops but we end policing in all its forms right and so and where yeah, and, and in the book, I feel like desire and its impossibility is the lens that I'm looking through so that I can physically exist, you know, in thinking about these issues, not the other way around, where it's like, oh, let me think in this very intellectual way. I mean, not that I obviously I'm very intellectual, <laughs> but like in this disembodied way, I should say. Where, like, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll meet someone and they're like, oh, you look, they, they really want to just have an argument with me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. Get the hell away. They're, you know, they're like, oh, let me just argue about, 
like, I don't know, gay marriage or something. I'm like, I only want to argue if the stakes are about our lives, not for like some academic pursuit, yeah, right? Like a and school so, debate in society or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So for me, I think, I feel like using that lens of desire and its impossibility or trying to exist in a gentrified world while still imagining the dream of a city as the place where, not where the gates are up, but where the gates no longer exist, you know, where there aren't walls, but actually a possibility to exist without walls. And using those lenses in order to actually feel, feel like, what am I up against? Like, what is, where is the loss? Where is the longing? Where is the, where are the places where I feel like I will never, ever get through? And how do I go into those feelings in order to at least imagine a potential for something else? Yeah. And lastly, I don't want to sort of end on a sort of queer, happy, clappy note, but one thing I did did sort of find really um, fortifying throughout the entire book is this is the presence of of like uh, queer friendships and this ability to find in them i guess what you talked about at the start of, uh, in, in what you're searching for in any sort of relationship which is an ability to keep going and get deeper and get more and more open of that person and more willing to yeah get to like the real nuts and bolts of of a, of a friendship or something and that that uh while these other sort of maybe sexual contacts come and go there's there's this 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 undertone of these voicemails and phone calls with old friends. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, voicemail for me is really a lifeline. <laughs> or just talking on the phone. Like, I know that most, uh, most people have moved away from that. But like, you know, I have relationships with people that I haven't seen in years that I, I'm closer to than people I see on a regular basis. And, and that's because of talking on the phone. And I do think, yeah, and also when you share a history with someone, when you're like, oh, wow, 25 years ago, and I'm like, what the hell? I can't believe I can say that now. But it's like, oh, that was, and that happened to us. And we were different then, but also we're the same. And I think for me, yeah, I feel like friendship, it really is my sustenance on an emotional level. um, And also like, how I can, I guess, figure out a way to exist in the world together, right? Like I, I, I can exist in the world by myself, but existing together with, you know, other people and in ways that are not scripted, I feel like friendship offers that, you know, way more than what most people consider like a romantic partnership. And I think my friendships are, I feel like they're all romantic, but it, it may or, and maybe it's not even different kind of romance. I don't know. So I don't even want to say it's not a romance. Like people were like, you know, even that distinction, I don't want. And like some of them might be sexual or some of them might not be. Some of them might be more like have more of a physical component and some might not. And, and I feel like definitely I'm always searching for the way to have the physical component. And I don't mean sexual, but I mean, well, or I mean sensual perhaps like in, a, in all relationships. And that also is perhaps, you know, a queer way of thinking about friendship. But yeah, I think for me, those are always the relationships that feel the most healing and the most, uh, that have the most potential. And I think 
Uh, and I feel like that's, you know, another way that gentrification has really impacted queer worlds and that people are not at all tuned into is in the readiness that people have to throw away their friendship, either for something they consider like the, oh my God, I met the true love. And they're like, okay, throw away all those friendships. You know, those are not queer values, but those are how people, how people act. And I feel like that is really a gentrified way of looking at things if when everything is disposable, right? When everything that isn't, um, you know, the one or like this top tier, you know, achievements, right? Doesn't matter. And so I would look at it more as, yeah, the possibility of all these different kinds of relationships um, in all of their implications, complications, uh, fun, frenzy, messiness, um, intimacy, and, and I guess the desire to create a path with one another toward an embodied existence in the world that doesn't have a delineation that separates our uh, imagination from our embodied sense of presence in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I actually found the book on a personal level has quite quite a bittersweet experience. I think we've uh, reached sort of an hour here. Thank you very much for talking and and, um, and for writing the book. It was, um, yeah, like I said, a, a, a really powerful and moving read and it really made me think more deeply about uh, the way we approach relationships, uh, friendships, and and especially queer space in, in cities today. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. And thank you to Hugh and Matilda for that wonderful conversation. If you'd like to support the podcast, make sure you subscribe on your medium of choice and head over to iTunes to give us a five-star review. Before we finish, I'd also like to say thank you to Samantha Doan, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack.